This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. Today you are going to take a front row seat to the memorable story behind 1992 Springbok coach John Williams. Officially, Johannes Gerardus Williams, of course in Pretoria, better known as John Williams, and in academic circles, it's Professor John Williams. We're going to start in 1992. John, welcome to Front Row Rugby. I've heard that you were appointed Springbok coach without even knowing that you were appointed. Tell me the story behind that. Peter, uh... What happened is that it was in uh, 1992. Uh, I was at uh, Potsdam University, and uh, I um, uh, left uh, the old Northern Transvaal at that stage because I uh, took up a job at the university in, in Potsdam. So it, uh, I stopped coaching at Northern Transvaal at the end of the 1989 season. So it was two seasons later, and then uh, one day, um, uh, the year he's already died, the newspaper man, Quintus van Rooyen, found me and he said, listen, do you know that you've been appointed as a Springbok coach? I said, no, I don't know. I said, well, I've got it from uh, the people down in Cape Town. There was a meeting, and it was decided that you will be the next Springbok coach. I said, okay, I'll sit and wait until I get something formally or in, in a written way. So that is uh, the story behind the fact. What would you say was your coaching philosophy in those days? As far as the uh, coaching philosophy is concerned, um, at, uh, at that stage, uh, we were in the position where we uh, strongly relied on uh, provincial rugby and the competition we had. And that was good. Uh, in some ways, it was a bit bad, especially for team spirit and those things. But uh, that kept rugby going. So um, a friend of mine, Johan Luchtelm, uh, we started talking once, and then they uh, realized we realized that we better get uh, uh, get up and get up to standard as far as coaching is concerned by attending international uh, coaching clinics. Um, in 1991 before the world cup just uh, before the world cup there was one in london we attended that and coming back from that we realized that uh yes there's a few things that we had to do and do it very quickly if we want to be up to standard the other fact of the story is that uh, our rugby administrators they, they have fallen behind uh you know uh, things like uh, appointing your own uh, assistant coach, having a physiotherapist, having a, a biogenetician and uh, all these other things that's necessary for the modern game. Uh, they uh, they don't didn't believe in that and they didn't want to allow it into the system. So we had to fight that too. But fact of the story is uh, we realized that we must, uh, as soon as possible, uh, get up to standard with the coaching. We went back, we organized with a few of the provincial coaches in South Africa, and uh, with the knowledge we brought back, we uh, started bringing them up to a standard and said, listen, from now on, we better do it this way. So that is um, was the philosophy at that stage, to, to bring up the game as soon as possible to international standards. I've had Ian McIntosh on the show and he told me that in those amateur days it was very difficult to prepare for a test match because you would only have a few days before the Saturday to get together but he did say that there were ways around that. How was the preparation for that first test match against New Zealand? 
That's right. That was some of the old ideas that the administrators stuck to, that uh, if you are the hosting team, you can only uh, get together the Thursday before uh, a test match. I mean, that was ridiculous. It was way outdated. And uh, uh, before the first test, which I was the coach that was played at Ellis Park, we uh, um, contacted people in... Uh, in Cape Town, and we told them, we said, listen, uh, this this rule doesn't apply anymore. Can, can't we get together beforehand and, uh, uh, and start preparing for this test? This is the first test we're going to play in a long time, and we're playing uh, a very strong uh, rugby country. And uh, I can still remember, I don't want to mention the names of this test, they just uh, contacted me back and said, the decision was made, uh, your request is denied. You can only get together on the Thursday. So that happened, and uh, that was the story. How would you describe that day at Ellis Park? Well, as you can expect it, it was the first test uh, for the Springboks to be played on home soil against our arch rivals, uh, the All Blacks. Uh, the stadium was packed, we sang the national anthem, and there was an electric atmosphere in the stadium. And the players did very, very well. As you uh, can remember from the score, I can't remember it, but I think the, the, the difference in the score was very low. And we had uh, one or two chances that we let go through our fingers, but fact of the story is with no international practice with no international uh, rugby for quite some time these players uh, went onto the field and they did a very very good job there and that's what i tried to tell you when i said that provincial rugby uh, saved us a lot of other stuff of uh, being falling way back behind uh, we were quite up to standard and we just need a little bit of polish. That's why, I mean, that's 1992. Uh, we never played in a World Cup. Uh, and then the, uh, I think the third World Cup was 1995 and we won the World Cup, South Africa. And it's in, 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 in three years' time. That tells you the quality of the players and the quality of the coaching that was there. The following week, we took quite a hiding against Australia, the world champions at the time, at a very wet Newlands. How do you remember that occasion? All right, again, with uh, very little preparation, uh, we get it on the Thursday, and uh, we um, uh, went through the game, the Alice Park game, and we uh, tried to uh, eliminate the, the mistakes we've made there, and then we said we're taking, uh, taking on the world champions. Uh, the team did very well. Uh, the Wallabies was a very, very polished team with some stars in them. And the game was in, in, uh, in, it was very close up to the end. And then we, there were two tries that happened. The ball bounced very well for them, but nothing, uh, take away from their, uh, uh, brilliant game. The Wallabies was a very good team at that stage and as you will see in the results of the tests that followed from there on, uh, they've been quite a problem for us because uh, under Bob Dwyer and the other coaches there, the Australian rugby was at that stage uh, having a boom. 
I know you had discussions before that tour to France and England in 1992 with Dr. Donnie Craven about taking younger players on the tour, and he wasn't very receptive to that. How difficult were those conversations? Well, I've made my point about the administrators, uh, but leaving before the 1992 tour to England and France, um, I, I was under the impression that... Uh, uh, I can pick my own assistant coach, which was Eugene van Wyk at that stage, and we worked very well together. And uh, he was uh, helping me with the uh, Springboks during the first stage at Alice Park. And uh, then I went to Doc and I said, listen, uh, we're in a situation, I want to have my own, uh, pick my own assistant coach. Uh, I want a biokinetician, which was a girl, uh, by the name of Eugenie Short, uh, which was very good with this uh, work that she was doing. And uh, I said, uh, all right, the rest was uh, the uh, uh, physiotherapist and the other people, the doctor was, uh, was easy. But uh, then at that stage, he just told me, he said, uh, well, as a matter of fact, the doctor and uh, which at that stage was Dr. Louis Vessels, uh, the doctor and I went to see him right in Stellenbosch. And uh, and when I when I <laughs> asked him for a biokinetician, he said, uh, turned to the doctor and said, well, why don't you do it? And, you know, that's when I realized that uh, the... Uh, uh, the way they see the game and the way the coaches have been seeing it and see the development of the other uh, teams of what's happening overseas, uh, you realize that you, this is going to be an uphill battle. So in the end, I, he said, who do you want? And I said, uh, the guy who was with them is Dan van Heever. I would like him or Eugenie Short. And then he said to me, no, uh, a woman won't be allowed. There can't be a woman there. And then uh, when it comes to the biokinetician, he said, well, I'll, I'll decide about that later. He will decide about that later. So, uh, yeah, that was the story. And uh, we went back to the hotel. And then the next day, he appointed a guy. Uh, uh, I don't know if he was from Stellenbosch. Uh, I, I think his name was Boki. Boki, I can't remember his surname. But... Uh, he appointed him and, uh, well, what do you do? You just have to accept it and that's the end of the story. Nas Boerter was your captain in 1992. What was your relationship like with Nas? I think good because we, uh, we've we been together since 1987 when I started coaching the old Northern Transvaals and nowadays Blue Bulls. Uh, and Nas was uh, the captain of the team uh, for 87, 88, 89. All right, I left after that and we rejoined in 1992. Nas was a, uh, he's a very good captain. He is uh, someone that can take the lead. He can, uh, he can lead by his example on the field. And as uh, a guy with the ball in a hand and uh, tactical kicking and those things that's concerned, you will never get anything better. So, yeah, we uh, we had uh, quite a good relationship, and I think uh, he did very well as a captain on that tour. A lot of the players have told me that they didn't enjoy that tour, especially the French League. From a coaching point of view, what are your memories? Well, what I uh, can tell you about that is that uh, you must look at it in uh, a much broader way. 
the um, big part of a tour, a rugby tour, especially a Springbok tour, is that uh, you go there well prepared. You go there and you are well organized for what you are about to get there on the other side. So what we try to do uh, in the first instance is that send people over there to go and have a look at what happened is that uh touring france uh, i had the opportunity to do it in uh, 1974 uh it's, it's always difficult they try they they really trying to make it difficult for you there were situations where the hotels where we stayed were so bad that we complained and we were moved to a beautiful hotel half an hour later why that why that's the frustration that the players had the other thing is that the french people they they try to make some th things a bit difficult for you especially if they put you in a hotel on this side of paris and then the training field is way out on the other side of paris uh you're stuck in the traffic you uh you you're, you're frustrated you can't uh do your training as well as you want to do it and then there's the language problem but that we overcome with uh, all the translators that was there so yeah that is that is uh, uh one of the biggest things that i think i think if we uh went in there well organized and we knew exactly what we're going to do and where we're going to stay and where the training fields are and everything, it would be much easier. And that frustration wouldn't have been uh, so high with the players. If I'm the one to go first and I had to be fired, I will do that. But at least we must make progress and we must step up because the next uh, moment, what happened, Ian McIntosh was the Springbok coach, and Ian McIntosh isn't even like Springbok. So what happened to the, my request about Eugene van Wyk? The next thing is that there was a press liaison officer, I think Robert Denton was the guy, and all those things were allowed. And I said, that's the things that we've learned from our tour that passed on to the next and the next, and in two or three times, we were up, two or three years, we were up to standard. I want to talk a little bit about provincialism, the idea that players from certain unions would stick together and only spend time with their teammates from that union. From a coaching perspective, how much of a problem was that? Well, let's put this into perspective. Um, uh, we, we're talking about human beings here. I mean, they have had this provincial rugby that was very good and very big, and it was very popular in South Africa. So, yes, yes, they have close associations with their provinces, and they really uh, were proud of that. Um, so much so, yes, that it could happen that uh, on a tour, it's the first tour since... You, uh, I think uh, 1981 was was the was the, the tour to New Zealand. That was the last tour. Uh, but anyhow, um, and now the other thing is that you cannot uh, switch that by uh, telling people, forget about your province, forget about everything. You now a Springbok team. That's it. That's something that must grow. That must grow out of relationships that must grow out of uh, what they did do on the playing field, the results, the success they have. And uh, yes, all that, all those things took time. It's, it's, you're not working here with uh, mechanical things, you're working with people. And working with people can sometimes take some time before you uh, 
can say that you have made a change to, uh, in the whole set of that was like that. Uh, so yes, perfectionism, as I said, was there, and 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 and. and if you're on a tour, uh, it's 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 strange situation. It's it's difficult. There's pressure on everyone. Where do you go? You you go and stick with the people that you know that you've had this experience with, and that's your provincial teammates. So yeah, that's it. And eventually, it will it will go. So after a few years, you've seen it. It was gone. How special was it to win that first test against France? What happened at that stage is that. Uh, the first stage was lying ahead. We had a few games. Um, the players could play. It was possible for uh, them to start competing for the positions in the test team. And uh, that's what we we said, the so necessary international experience. So these players uh, started to get back. Uh, we had uh, experienced players, Nas, Dani Gerber, uh, Garth Wright. Uh, players that that has, has meant a lot to to the team at that stage. So when we uh, played against France in that first test, um, it was um, a lot more experience that ran onto the field than against the All Blacks and the Wallabies a few months ago. And you could see that the way that they played. Uh, especially if you look to this at, at the second test too, you will see that they did very well. They lost that test, yes, but the the standard of the rugby was improving tremendously. Four defeats in five test matches. How much better do you think the results could have been had you been allowed to select the players that you had preferred? At that stage, you must remember the selection committee was seven people, seven people. So. When we sat down for the picking of the team for the uh, European tour, uh, I had uh, a bunch of younger players uh, in my mind. Players that I thought that uh, they could, Yanni de, like Yanni de Beer and the Martins guy from the Free State, it was a scrum of, and so uh, a few others. And I thought it would be a wonderful. Uh, learning curve for them if they could go on that tour uh and when we when i put forward some of the names then all of a sudden i find that uh there's resistance from the committee you know uh, what's so funny is that you're the coach you must uh you must coach the team that other people pick for you and when something is wrong you must take the responsibility and i tried to convey that message to them and said, listen, I must take responsibility for this team's performance. So all I'm asking you now is this, I don't want to pick the team on my own, but if it's a situation like we're four or three, four, four against and three with, and can I have the final say, who's the player I want to play? And I was denied that. And that is the story you have to take the team that was picked for you and not what you want. On it, on tour, it was a difficult situation. On tour, you had your um, um, assistant coach, and you had uh, your uh, captain and vice captain, and uh, uh, it was much easier to discuss the uh, players that that you intend picking for a test team. 
There were no cell phones or email in those days, and you've already described the amateur nature in which you were appointed a Springbok coach. How did you find out that you had been relieved of your duties? <laughs> yeah, the the same guy that phoned me and said you were appointed, Gunther van Rooyen, he uh, uh, phoned my secretary uh, in Portsmouth one day and he said uh, he wanted to talk to me, but I was in a meeting and then um, he said you must tell him that uh, you must phone me back because uh, I believe from what I've heard they have fired him as a coach. I said, okay. And so I um, phoned him back and I said, Quintus, uh, so where do you hear that? Or who said, is it official? Or what is it? He said, no, I, uh, they haven't, uh, haven't they contacted you? I said, no. And I said, no one have contacted me. Uh, he said, well, uh, I can't remember. There was quite a shuffle of uh, coaches. I think uh, Ian McIntosh and then I think later there was that shuffle when uh, other coaches were on and uh, they were uh, fired before they even started coaching or so on. But that's the story. And uh, um, uh, I said, well, good luck to him. I, uh, uh, I've, I've got no problems. I think Mackie will do a good job. And uh, I said, but uh, I think somebody must just uh, pick up the phone or... Uh, wrote me a letter and said, listen, uh, we don't think you've done very well and uh, we, you are now relieved of your uh, position as coach of the Springboks. And, but up to this date, no one has ever told me anything. So that is that sto story. Uh, it's not a question of cell phones. The other phones worked very well. So there was no other excuses for that. But that's the way it happened. I've heard many people, especially foreigners, talk about how far behind South African rugby was in 1992. From a coaching perspective, John, what would you say were the biggest gaps? Well, the first thing is that uh, we're not so far uh, behind that, that as, as, you, as, as I've answered you that in the previous. I, I was thinking of uh, the situation of more international competition. That is very important. That's vital. And that shows you some players can bridge the gap between uh, club rugby, provincial rugby. But there's very few players that can bridge the gap between... Uh, Provincial rugby and uh, Springbok rugby, and especially Test rugby against the top rugby nations. Uh, so when we started uh, uh, having more experience and more having playing more Tests and having more tours, all of a sudden our rugby started going up, going up. The next thing is that your uh, um, coaches. You know, I don't agree. I, know, I think Mac, Mackie was fired after a year. Carl Duplessis was fired. And whoever came, they were fired after a year. Uh, I think, I really think if you're a coach and you're up to standard and you've done your planning and you make yourself available for that position, it's not for people sitting there and then after a year say, listen, he's, uh, we lost two or three tests. We must fire him now. Uh, I mean, they must be appointed like nowadays. You have a contract, you have, you're being paid, and you are contracted for that period. And that is, to me, then you as a coach know, you and your team, supporting team around you, you know what lies ahead, 
you know what preparation you can do and must do, and you you know that you have got a chance. You haven't got six months or a year or a year. You've got more than that. You know, uh, we easily want nowadays and to fire a coach when he's doing bad. Okay, sometimes there's a reason for that, but on the in most cases. Uh, a team goes through a bad patch and they just have to pick up from there. I mean, if you can remember before the World Cup, the Jake White one, a few months before they had a, 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 a big losing, a, a loss against England. Um, uh, I, I, I can't remember the, the, the score, but it was quite big. And there were placards up and everybody was fighting, fire Jake White, fire Jake White. How can they fire Jake White? Jake White and his team was appointed, they had contracts, and to fire them would cost millions. And you just can't do that. And what happened? Jake White turned the things around and he won the World Cup. So that's one of the things that most of the people easy forget. Uh, we are hungry for success, yes. Uh, and, and, and sport is always will always be measured by success. But you must be reasonable in your expectations. Every Springbok coach has had an up-and-down relationship with the media. In 1992, John, what was your relationship like with the press? You know, it's it's never difficult to deal with the, with the media if it's organized. Uh, meaning that, I mean, that you must, you must the, the media, it's a very necessary part of rugby and sport. And you must give those people a chance to talk to you, to talk to the players and uh, to get their stories and to sell the, the newspapers. Uh, but it must be done in an organized way. I mean, you must have uh, sessions where, uh, say, let's take, the, um, for example, before a test. Uh, you must have at least one night uh, or one day or whatever where the uh, coach and the captain uh, will be speaking. And then uh, from the press, there will most probably be a request for they want to talk to player A or player C or D, and then you must allow that. And uh, then after the game, the same, you uh, you must have your official press conference and there you can discuss and everything can be laid out there. Once you've done that, it's easy to, to work with the press. But when it's a question from uh, the newspaper man found you and then uh, other guy found you and then in the newspaper, the one says, this guy, he said that and that guy said, he says, that. no, that's nonsense. Uh, you cannot work like that. Uh, if you do it in an orderly way, you'll get along very well and it will be to, for, the benefit, for the benefit of both. And what are you up to these days? In 1999, I uh, decided that uh, I've had enough. Um, the family farm is here on the Limpopo River, uh, face, uh, next to Botswana. And uh, we've had this farm since 1944 in our family. And uh, my father died, yes, in, in, in the same year that I was coached, 1992. And... Uh, I tried to manage the farm and my job at the university for some years, seven years, and then I realized it's not going to work. Uh, and then uh, I made a decision. I said, okay, I will, um, I'm, I'm, I'm resigning now. Uh, I want to start farming or go farming. I've started already. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I went there. And um, since then, it's now uh, more than 20 years. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. 
uh, it's a hard life. Uh, it's a tough country where I'm staying here. Uh, but um, we've been very lucky. Uh, the Lord has been very good to us as far as uh, rain is concerned and blessings is concerned. I'm farming with uh, game. I'm farming with uh, uh, beef master cattle and dorper sheep. And then I've got the irrigation system where I produce food for these animals. So that's what I'm up to. And I'm, I, I've got a full day of work every day in front of me. Professor John Williams, I want to say that it was an absolute pleasure having you on Front Row Rugby today. It really was. And I hope that we can have you on again in the future. Peter, thank you very much. It was mm, quite nice for me to talk to you. And uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you, your program is, uh, <laughs> comes out very nice. But all the best, my friend, and you're always welcome to contact me. Bye. Last time on Front Row Rugby, 1995 Rugby World Cup champion Joel Stransky was my guest. You can go and have a look at that video. It's appearing on your screen right now. Next time, we'll have Heinrich Fuls here. This Front Row Rugby episode appeared originally on YouTube. If you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. See you next time.